Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week, that film is a 2008 feature-length documentary that chronicles the creation and development of Cirque du Soleil's Beatles-themed show, Love. The film, which went on to win a Grammy for Best Long-Form Music Video, perhaps raising questions about the need for a possible rename there, is essentially an extra-long making-of feature. It shows us the creatives behind the project, making love into a mind-bending concept, the acrobats making love into a spectacular performance, and George and Giles Martin making love into a double Grammy winning concept album. And yet somehow the film avoided all the obvious puns and was simply called All Together Now. Uh, but first things first, love as an album is absolutely brilliant, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone seems to like it, right? I think it's the kind of thing that at the time people would have thought, oh God, right? Oh, they're changing it. They're, <laughs> they're going to meddle with it. And there, and there is a lot in this film actually especially George Martin in this is very, very aware of that. Uh, Giles as well, you know, uh, they're both aware of the fact that if doing this and getting this wrong is potentially catastrophic. You know? Yeah, it's funny because you can't imagine that now, isn't it? Because it seemed, it seems now so well received. And, and also just the idea of anybody saying, oh, messing with the Beatles recordings when what you're doing by messing with them is making more Beatles recordings out of the originals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just seems 
churlish. <laughs> yeah, you know? it does. Yeah, um, it, it, it seems crazy to me that uh, that anyone would have a problem with it. But uh, this album, I I absolutely love, and I, I think that I probably turn to this album more. This this might be sacrilege me saying this, but I probably yeah, yeah. turn to this album more for casual Beatles listening mm. than any other album of theirs. Right, you know, because I think you go through phases, don't you? It's like, oh, I want to listen to early Beatles, or, or, or you know, or you do choose particular albums to listen to, but mm. because um, love covers the whole career in an interesting way, yeah, probably it's more my go-to um, than any particular one album. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I listen to it a lot as well, uh, and and it's probably when in a similar mood, like, oh, I can't choose, mm. I'll stick that one on, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you do still get people today, uh, you know, with the release of the the remasters, 50th anniversary ones. Uh, you do still see people on social media saying, well, I've got I've got the originals. I'm not interested in yeah. anything beyond that, which is completely fair enough. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I mean, for me, honestly, like my ear is not so well attuned that I can always tell the difference. So I can immediately tell the difference. Um, so some you definitely can. Um but I think um, for this was the first thing where they were deliberately trying to do it in such a way because they were building this theatre in Las Vegas for the show, which involved having speakers in every chair. So the idea was there's a kind of surround sound element to it. So George and Giles are deliberately editing it in such a way that it's suitable for that. Yeah. And I think one of them says, uh, I think maybe it's Giles says, you know, we're trying to do it in a way that it's as if you're sitting in the room with the Beatles playing around you. Yeah, I'd really like to see it, you know. I know, yeah. And we should probably say up front, we're going to be talking about a, a feature-length documentary about a show we haven't seen. Yeah, that's so true, yeah. Let's see how far that gets us. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a good point, actually, about how that was mixed for that immersive experience in mind, because I don't know whether this is a, a result of that or just the nature of the project, but I do feel like whenever I listen to the album, I'm always finding things that I swear I've never heard before in there. Yeah. Like I was listening to, I was listening to, um, I listened to it earlier, uh, you know, early this week, and I think under the first verse in Glass Onion, uh, it plays the end of the piccolo trumpet solo in Penny Lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not hidden; it's not buried yeah. at all. It's just because there's so much going on in a lot of those songs, your attention gets diverted to one track or the other, yeah. and I just don't remember noticing that before. Yeah. Um, and it's just I'm, I just feel like it's, uh, you know, sort of like a treasure trove of easter eggs mm. um before that was even really a thing to be mm. able to like listen to that and just pick out elements and bits of guitar solo that you know you've you know you know it's from a track and probably can't even pinpoint which track it is mm. but you just you know just that sort of the the fun in recognizing those those elements is just yeah it's great yeah yeah, yeah. and some some bits even have bits where that are not in themselves all that distinctive yeah i only recently real i think it's i think it's again glass onion has some of the acoustic guitars from things we said today on it. That's right, yeah. Which actually makes perfect sense in terms of like the rhythm of those two songs and even the key. Actually, they're both in e, A minor, maybe. Um, and um, and and th- th- those guitars are not particularly distinctive. But then once you know it's in there, you listen and it's it's completely obvious and you can't unhear it. You know. Um, yeah, there are bits. I remember the first time I heard it thinking. What is is it? Drive my car. Then has the guitar solo from Taxman on yes, it. I think. Yeah, which is great. And that works so well. Yeah. Um. And and even brings in, like one of the sort of lesser, if you like, songs off Rubber Soul into that mix, which is 
You've got the word. What you're doing. Uh, and what you're yeah, doing. what you're yeah. doing, yeah. Yeah, uh, which is great, you know, and it's nice for those songs to get a bit of an airing as well, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and I, I, my favourite part, I think, on the whole album is the the break in being for the benefit of Mr. Kite into I Want You She's So Heavy. Mm. And I think that was the first time I realised that, because you've got the, you know, Henry Horse dancing the waltz. Mm. It's the first time I realised that that ending to I Want You She's So Heavy is also in the same time signature mm. as a waltz. You know, it's in 3-4. Yeah. And it's just it's just a brilliant segue into that. I just, I feel like the, the whole project is such an interesting, it's, it's a fun listen, but it's such an interesting showcase of how you can find suitable, relatable elements in different songs that span years yeah. um, and bring them together. I, yeah, it's actually brilliant. I'm basically describing the concept of a mashup, but <laughs> but it works. It's it's a really good album. It's very fun. Yeah, it does. I think I think like maybe my favorite bit from the album is the bit where at the end of there's the the isolated vocals to Sun King back, oh, yeah. backwards, uh, which then sort of finishes and there's a couple of seconds of silence. And then, uh, then you just get sort of George. George begins to sing something, which is kind of unadorned until until the the, the rest of the music is faded up, and it's lovely. It's as if you just sort of walk, you've walked out into a clearing or something like that, and yeah. it's completely silent. And then it and then it just sort of uh, and then it just sort of comes along. Uh, it's lovely. I just think the way they've you get the impression they were thinking a lot about sort of sound scapes if i could use that. Yep. i can't really define what the term soundscapes means but but you know it what i mean right yeah it does sound right it sounds <laughs> like the kind of thing they probably would have been doing uh yeah i think uh it sounds they were thinking about ways in which the sound would have a specific effect you mm. know um and not just which songs go well with which songs you know and, and i think so following that to discuss the this actual film itself i will admit i was a little bit disappointed uh, that the film didn't cover as much of the music and the development of the album as the show, because I it realised that you know the the Cirque du Soleil show is a collaboration between that company and the Beatles. I guess I was expecting a little bit more fifty fifty between music and performance, yeah. but actually the film is understandably it's absolutely fine. But I guess I, I'm interested in how the music side comes together. There is a brilliant special feature on the DVD where it, which delves into that for quite a long time as well. It's a good twenty thirty minutes. Twenty minutes, yeah, and yeah. um, uh, and that's really interesting because you can see Giles Martin like fading and out uh, different isolated tracks and yeah, actually yeah. literally calling out. I've got this bit from. This song and this yeah, bit from this song and yeah. stuff, and that's really interesting. So I could have watched an entire hour of that, uh, yeah, but yeah. instead um, we have the uh, the documentary, which is about the uh, bringing together uh, rehearsals and uh, premiering of the Cirque du Soleil performance. Mm. Did you find, like I did a little bit, that as interesting as it was, it just kind of made me want to watch the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which. Obviously, understandably, it doesn't show much of because that's yeah. what the life experience is for. Right. Um, but it was almost, in some ways, a little bit of a frustrating watch because I kept seeing glimpses of things that I wanted to see play out properly. Mm. Um, but that's not what the film is for. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose so. This this is a film that it, it sort of introduces a bit of narrative jeopardy. It has a lot of com- in common with Get Back, actually, the way that it it, it handles that, whereby. Is telling you a countdown at three hundred days to premiere, you know, and um, and so 
where where things go wrong as they do a, a little bit not very seriously but you do, you do see a little bit of um uh backstage uh, tension if you like so it is kind of uh uh it is sort of driving it forward by g- giving you that thing of um you know here is it, it, we've only got this much time to put on a show like it has to be done by this time you know um it's, it's sort of what it's trying to do uh it, but yeah in in doing so you see you see snippets of rehearsal and and there are bits where they say oh the um there's a big bit in the middle of the stage that sort of it collapses and then a piano comes out of it or something like that and you think ah okay right this will be the big thing where like you know the shark in jaws keeps on the mechanical shark keeps on failing and you know that you know that that whole thing yeah um and it's not really like it, it's just sort of fixed but you, it, it's sort of fixed pretty quickly but also you don't really see uh you don't see the, the the jeopardy of that you don't see the sort of little conflicts and resolution that maybe it's supposed to indicate you know? i completely agree and i think that's so it starts off uh, really early on saying 300 days uh, to premiere yeah. and then you see later on 200 days to premiere you don't really get a sense of how much progress has been made at, at that point we, no. we're just watching some rehearsals yeah. to the point and then it says um, I think it says something like 131 days to premiere mm. and normally that's that, that kind of um, register that time register is so that we get the sense that when something goes really wrong, it's like, oh god, you only got 131 days to go. How are you going right. to solve this in time? You know, yeah, like, right, yeah. like you know, like the the entire stage needs rewiring, or you know, the prop master has read seven feet instead of seven inches. You know, mm. or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> and um, uh, but it's not. So the only reason why that says 131 days till premiere is because that's the day the camera crew turned up. Yeah, and that's what they're doing because actually what we're seeing <laughs> is no different to yeah. 130 days yeah. till premiere or yeah, yeah. you know 120 days. You know, um, so yeah, I kind of got the impression that they, that we were supposed to get the sense of this looming deadline that everything needs to fall into place for, and how mm. are they going to pull it off? Yeah. But actually, it seemed pretty much in hand. Yeah, pretty much. I think, you know, this is a promotional film to go along with the show and the album. So uh, while it's a, it's a perfectly entertaining film, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure anyone has particularly put a lot of thought into how are we going to structure this documentary, that kind of thing. Um, you do get bits where the main guy who, the writer-director... Um, Dominic Champagne. Dominic Champagne. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, it is. It is. It is. We're recording this a couple of days after Martin Amos died, and it's quite nice to have a person who like could have been a, the name of a Martin yes. Amos character. <laughs> <laughs> like, just yeah. that you know, is if if Martin Amos was writing a sort of louche playboy, <laughs> like it's exactly what he'd be called. Uh, but anyway, but this, this Dominic Champagne is not like that at all. But. Um, but yeah, he, he talks a bit. So you're told that, oh, this is the guy and he's written the story. Um, and so like we don't really see what the story is. And that that's kind of okay, I suppose. I suppose like they're deliberately hiding it from you because they're trying not to give too much away. Yeah. Uh, but also it's quite unsatisfying because you're not really told. You, you don't really see, oh, this is his creative vision. This is what he's trying to do. What you mainly see is him sort of having meetings with George and Giles and with Yoko and Olivia and, and various people um, and sort of trying to sort of sort out little bits, just like mm. sort of firefight small bits of it. And, and, and actually what you're not seeing is like, oh, this guy wrote this thing. What's the, what's it about? What's the, yeah. what's the, what's the main And, and also because the bits that we see on stage, yeah. some of it looks incredible. Like some mm. absolutely amazing visuals, the kind of thing where you look at it and it's, and it's, 
B-roll footage, right, of, of the dress rehearsal or, or whatever it is. And you, you look at it and go, oh, yeah, how, how have they pulled that off? That looks amazing. Mm. And there's not much explanation for those conceptual ideas that make up this performance. Yeah. Uh, so you're right. What you're left with is this impression of Dominic Champagne, louche playboy Dominic Champagne, <laughs> yeah. as, um, as kind of the guy who's just facilitating the work. And yes. there were lots of conversations where, and, and it's actually really interesting seeing him address the fact that he has a delicate balance to maintain between the his stakeholders, which are the various members of the Beatles estate. Mm. And, and and actually, it's not explicitly stated, but I think when you watch the uh, the film, it's clear that there have had to be some compromises made mm. as a result of trying to maintain a delicate balance and keep everyone happy. Yeah. But again, that just sort of reduces him to the role of facilitator and mitigator. Yeah. You know, which is a shame, really, because he's clearly a creative visionary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's interesting bits in it where Olivia and Yoko, are, I think Olivia probably more than Yoko, but Olivia Harrison in particular is... It seems to have a fair bit of creative involvement uh, in this. Uh, I think it's largely because um, the project sort of initially came about because of George Harrison's friendship with uh, Guy La Liberté, who's one of the founders of Cirque du Soleil. I think they met on the on the for- Formula One circuit or something yeah, yeah, like I don't that. Think it's, yeah, I think you can yeah. call it a circuit when it's any other industry, but a Formula One circuit feels like they've met on the track. <laughs> <laughs> or just, just running around it. <laughs> yes. so, oh, hi. How's it going? You running as well? Oh, yeah. anyway. What do you do? Oh, I'm in circus. Oh, yeah. I've got okay. a business proposition for you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, so I think because of that, so um, George having... Uh, so uh, uh, he he was a big fan of the whole thing of Cirque du Soleil and um, him having sort of at least kicked off the idea of the project. I think Olivia is is involved now, sort of after his death. Uh, and she had, I think they're all, uh, it's slightly unspoken, but they're all kind of doing it for George in a way. And they want to, uh, they want to fulfill his vision. Olivia is very committed to that. And so there are, there are scenes in which she's giving feedback. But these are some, some of the moments of, of actual real tension in this film where you think oh wow you're actually showing this so you know because um yeah she gives a bit of feedback about a, a couple of the characters and says um listen you know if i can speak freely I, I you know i don't like these characters at all and it seems from the context that she's talking about like two characters who are quite fundamental to the entire thing yeah and this feedback is coming quite late in the day it seems. yeah absolutely yeah uh, um and, and elsewhere in the documentary uh she talks about the creative choice by george and giles to use an acoustic demo version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah. And she, she explicitly says everyone wanted this version of the song but me mm. because she said she didn't see how a demo version of that song would work in a big theatre. Yeah. And I, I am left thinking, you know, there, there, there are teams of people working on this project who are more than capable of, of knowing whether or not that is possible to work or not. Yeah. Um, appreciate her stance on this is is to honor George's input and and his his art yeah uh, in in that way. But it feels like I don't know Olivia saying that and putting her foot down a little bit about that choice. It, it feels like well you know that's why you have other creative teams who are experts in this particular area. Yeah, um, and then actually the way they get around that I think the the film 
explains is that is that George Martin then writes what is uh, what becomes his last string arrangement mm. ever, not yeah. less alone for a Beatles song, and that gives it a bit more of a lush feel that fills the uh, theatre. So it's it's a welcome choice or yeah. welcome solution to um to that concern. Yeah, but yeah, there there's feedback from. Uh, Olivia that's voiced in, uh, in a couple of instances in the film that feels like it brings about tension. Hmm. Also, there's Yoko Ono, who at some point calls out that the performance that happens during Come Together is too sleazy, hmm. and that the song itself is more about a uh, coming together for political activism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that really seems to grind Dominic Champagne's gears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he seems particularly stressed about that. He has like this, um, like a, it's like a paper lever arch it's a, folder a paper bulldog clip. Bulldog clip, yes, yes, it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. And you just see that, like him pinching his hands a bit, almost like yeah, it's <laughs> like out of frustration and tension. Yeah, of. that's throughout the film, isn't it? Yeah. kind of the cameraman has obviously noticed that yes. he does this, and every now and again will focus in on it, which is which is quite fun. Very good camera work. I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, like you know, so you have Olivia and Yoko, uh, absolutely, it's right and proper that their voices should be heard in these things, you know. But I, I don't know. I, I suppose this, this is one of the things that uh, you know. I think there's there's always a bit of sexism about. I don't mean in, in terms of uh, Dominic Champagne, despite the name. I don't think he's a sexist at all. Uh, but <laughs> but um, I, I think in in general the way that uh, people think about this, there there has always been a little bit of an understanding. It's like, well, what do these what do these women know? This is men's rock. Like, how dare they? You know. And and like, I am against that. However, um, <laughs> I both of the things they're saying there. I mean. I, I, I disagree with Yoko Ono. I think Come Together is a deeply sleazy song um, yes. and, and all the better for it. Right? Yes. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's part of part of its charm. And and yes, the sort of, I get that there are, polit- I think he originally wrote it as Tim Timothy Leary's campaign song to run for governor of California, That's right? right? Yeah. So, but uh, I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, Here Come Old Flat Top is a particularly political line, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And and like with uh, Olivia's thoughts about while well, my guitar gently weeps, I found that really interesting because I wonder whether she felt nervous that George's voice would be too sort of unadorned and a bit too. She would have been aware certainly of not not in the Beatles years so much, but like sort of later on, you could sort of tell George's vocal frailty in places, especially mm-hmm. in the seventies when he was sort of doing too much cocaine and also. Uh, on Brainwash, the posthumous album, bits of which were recorded, you know, when when he when he had cancer, and you can hear the frailty, and it was actually one of the things that gives that album its charm, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and some that sort of vulnerability you can hear. But I wonder whether she was a bit concerned about just having George's voice up there on its own, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I have never particularly liked the studio version of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I've always preferred that demo yeah, version anyway. You know? Yeah, I, I, it's, it, that is interesting. I think the, um, the the point isn't that their concerns aren't valid. Um, I think the point is that, as the documentary shows, it feels like when those concerns are raised, it's a bit late in the day. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we've written an entire production around these two characters yeah and uh and and come together like i i get the impression at least when that comes up in the film that there have been lots and lots of rehearsals of that song to that music before yoko makes the um the, the comment that it shouldn't be that sleazy mm. the the elegant solution they seem to come up with for that and this is probably 
unfair because I obviously haven't seen the whole show in the context of this performance. But when we see it later on in the film, we see the exact same uh, quote-unquote sleazy dance routine. Mm. But in on the screens uh, in the backdrop, we there were some videos of people marching. Yep. So there yeah. we go. Political activism yeah. and sleaziness yeah. in, in one, just as John wanted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One of the interesting things that uh, happens as a result of those moments in the film is that you uh, really see Dominic Champagne's chagrin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at having to face these comments and these criticisms, uh, I guess, and the pressure that puts him under to then change elements of the show. And you see actual backstage drama, mm-hmm. actual arguments at the back of that. And I, I find that interesting because there's always something very titillating about watching something like that play out isn't it you know that you're you're having uh access to scenes that really shouldn't be made public because this is about the the private creative process and and you you get to see this sort of this drama play out a little bit uh backstage which is quite interesting to see yeah that's that's always interesting that's obviously one of the big appeals of get back in that you know they they of course are aware they're being filmed but no one can get a bit like watching Big Brother. Like no one can keep up the awareness that they're being filmed twenty four hours a day. So you know, a, a lot of what you get is quite, quite natural interactions. Um, obviously, one of the it's probably the most controversial segment of Get Back is the sort of hidden microphone in the flower pot thing when he's rec- recording uh, John and Paul having their conversation. And yeah, so you get you, you get bits of that sort of thing here where you you feel like you're um, uh, get, getting a little peek behind the curtain. Remember George saying in the anthology about bringing Eric Clapton in to the Weiss album sessions to play and while my guitar gently weeps, and he said, "Oh, it's interesting how people are always on their best behaviour when a guest turns yeah. up." You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's true. Yeah. All the arguments stop for a while, but yeah, there does seem to be a bit. There's kind of always tension, you know, in the sort of post Beatles Beatles. I, I thought it was quite nice to see that Olivia and Yoko seem to be quite close and seem to like, like quite like each other and are certainly when they're there together do seem to be working as a unit, you know. Yes, on, yeah, on, you're right. On, yeah, on behalf of um, and supportive of each other and each other's comments as well. They're backing each other up yes, a lot. And, yeah. yeah, and and they're not trying to. I mean, George Martin makes the really good points in it that all of them individually, Paul, Ringo. Yoko and Olivia are all sort of fighting their own corner like yeah. for, for their individual beetle, you know. He makes that brilliant analogy where he says it's like looking at a school photo uh, and the first thing you do when you look at a school photo is look for yourself. Yeah. First. And I think that's brilliant. <laughs> it's, I, as, as, it's such a good yeah. comparison to make. It's completely true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, so that, that, that tension has always been there a bit, you know. One of the things I've found really interesting, actually, is that at the start of this, when they talk about the way the project was initiated, um, so we know that it comes from George and his fondness for Cirque du Soleil. And then Paul, in his first sort of talking head bit, says, well, I first saw Cirque du Soleil when my daughter took me to see it at the Royal Albert Hall. And then George and Olivia took me to see O in Las Vegas. So O is another um, Cirque du Soleil show that's been running in Las Vegas forever, I think. Mm. And And so he's talking about that happening in 2001. So early 2001, this would have been perhaps before he knew he had cancer again. Uh, mm. I'm not really sure of the timeline of it. And so, yeah, he says, yeah, yeah, George and Olivia took me to see this show. And I thought, really? Like, uh, Paul and George were certainly on much better terms, certainly by the end of his life. 
But I, I, I was quite surprised to hear that, that George would be like, oh, this is a really good show. I'm going to ring up Paul and see if he yeah. wants to come to this. Um, and I thought, well, may, maybe Paul is kind of exaggerating the way that happened. But then you see a still photograph of Paul and George backstage at that show with the cast. Yeah. yeah they just seem to be having a great time and both seem to be very happy. And I thought, well, that's lovely. Yeah. I, I had no idea that was the case. It's interesting, it's really isn't it? Nice. Because yeah. I wonder, like, so I guess two things about that. One is just that, I uh, my understanding of that whole period uh, and the relationship between Paul and George at that time is that during the uh, making of the anthology series, they didn't really get along. They had to put on a bit of a show for appearances' sake, yeah. and that is quite obvious and palpable in the the footage you see of them reuniting in that series. Yep. And then sort of skip ahead um, a number of years, and you, you have Paul's very tender story about. Uh, how he held George's hand whilst he was essentially on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always kind of had a bit of a disconnect there in terms of like, you know, how did that sort of reconciliation come about yeah. if there was tension in anthology? And I think there's probably a danger. One, there's a danger of uh, assuming that the, that narrative around your anthology is the only narrative that exists. Mm. And I, I think, you know, we are always in a habit of simplifying things in, in that way. Uh, but the other thing as well is, is that is there something in the fact that George taking Paul to O was actually a way to kickstart some of the conversations about this project. Yeah. You know, maybe that was a, a precursor for that, which obviously he'd need Paul's sign off um, to, to progress on that. So maybe that was part of that reconciliation. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose this thing is that we, maybe we have the tendency because, you know, all, all we know is the, uh, the sort of big steps in this story, you know, so we think, oh, well, they hated each other in the anthology and then they seem to love each other in 2001, yeah. you know. And that, but of course, the, I mean, there's so many little meetings and dinners and phone calls and things like that in between that, some of which will have gone well and some of which will have gone badly. Yeah. And, and so I suppose you end up thinking, you know, the reason I immediately think, um, oh, that's weird. I wouldn't have thought they would have gone to a show together. It's completely based on uh, my only knowing the bit, you know, being aware of the the, the public meetings they had, or the meetings that yes. were witnessed and people have written about. Yeah, and of course there were so so many other ones that I wouldn't know about, you know. And also, sense. all of their conversations would have been predicated on the fact that they are friends and business colleagues, uh, both at the same time. Yeah. And depending on what you know, which one of those things they were about, then uh, you know that's going to determine whether it goes good or bad. I guess, you know, yeah, yeah, what's going to so, contribute to it. Yeah, so so many little interactions they would have had like every time there's some new Beatles product coming out like a remaster of an album or a re-release of this or that or whatever or you know some box set of something there will have been a bit you know even if they weren't in touch you know sort of all the time week to week they would have been getting together to discuss those yes Um, and and all of these are little interactions where you know I suppose their relationship could be, you know, getting a little bit better every time if it goes, even it's a five minute phone call, but it goes well. Yeah, know, exactly. Like, um, and also, uh, of course, like the, the these men have known each other since they were sort of, you know, 14 years old or whatever it is. Hmm. Um, there, there's such an enormous amount of history and closeness between them that whatever their disagreements, you know, but it's, it's obviously just a, a sort of abiding love and respect between the two of them. It would be, and so w- whenever I see evidence that they sort of um, got, got together and have fun, it shouldn't be such a surprise to me. <laughs> yes, you know? yeah, like, yeah, of course. You know. If anything, it makes you wonder how many other things happened that you you wish you knew about. 
Oh, but so, are just so remain many. Pro- yeah, so exactly. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, Going back to what we were saying before about the the tensions that we see are coming through in this documentary. One of the things why that's quite interesting is because, and we've, we've talked about this before, is that even though this is part of an official Apple project, an official Beatles project, uh, and even though this film is obviously an official uh, product from Apple, you don't actually expect to see that sort of behind the scenes tension nowadays. Yeah. You know, that all gets polished out now and uh you know like i said we have talked about this before many times but that's why it's so interesting that when this dvd was released which was 2008 there was still an opportunity for us to really see a little bit you know what's of what's really under the bonnet of uh apple core mm. and those sort of business relationships and existing friendships yeah they seem to seems to be one of the last things that sort of a- apple released before they really turned into Apple 2.0, you know, and really got to grips with uh, this is the Beatles legacy and this is our plan to uh, to keep it going with, you know, with with various media releases, which now is just is just an absolute juggernaut. And it, yeah. that is and they, they have planned it exceptionally well. Um, is that is that because of uh, Neil Aspinall passing? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's. I mean, those th- things do seem to have coincided in a way. But I mean, but Neil certainly like an excellent steward of the Beatles' uh, legacy, and he. There's. He's. Um. Uh, this film, by the way, is dedicated to his memory because he died. Um. Around. Uh, around this time, and uh, so he's one of the talking heads in it, and uh, he's sort of one of the ex- executive producers of the show, and um. Uh, he talks in it about um. Uh, that previously Cirque du Soleil shows have had always featured performed music, and that was the proposal with which they came to him. That this will be performers playing Beatles songs, and he immediately said, "No, it it, it has to be the actual recordings." Yeah. and he's a hundred percent right about that. You know, there, there is no, there's no magic in this thing if it's other people playing it. Yeah, playing the song. It's, and also, it's, it feels like there's no magic in this thing without the particular album that we get, which is a. Uh, an immersive Beatles experience. Like mm. I, I imagine that the idea behind having performers play those songs would be they'd be played much straighter 
because yeah. you, you don't have the opportunity to play with the, the different elements of the songs that we eventually get. Yeah. So, I mean, the the thought of having sort of acrobats perform to just a covers band, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, which is essentially what that would be, yeah. um, doesn't feel anywhere near as exciting. No, no. But, you know, N- Neil completely understood how special the Beatles were, are, and he... Um, and he was very protective of that legacy, uh, and he and he did an absolutely fantastic job as well. Um, yeah, I think this is um, interesting thing about this being an official Apple product is that I'm surprised that as a documentary, it's not more well known because although the the subject matter is sort of fairly niche, arguably, i.e., this one show uh, that Cirque du Soleil did, and it's about how that show was put together. Which, which nobody is particularly fascinated about, I suppose. But also, this is an official Apple product. It has actual contemporary talking head contributions from Paul, Ringo, Yoko, Olivia, Neil Aspinall, George Martin, Giles Martin. Who else? Uh, I mean, but that'll do. That will do, yeah. Um, from the Beatles camp, I don't think there's anyone else. But obviously, then you have to search to slay. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. But in terms of, you know, actual proper heavyweights in, you know, we talk we talk a lot when we talk about these documentaries about um about the sort of quality of talking heads they that they've got in there. And this is, is pretty pretty much unparalleled yes. other than yeah, sort yeah, of the, the anthology and things. And so it's um it, it it's interesting that it's less well known about as a document and also that it's just like a DVD they released in 2008. And and then that's kind of it. Yeah, I, I kind of it, it does feel like even though, uh, even though the album won a couple of Grammys and this DVD won the apparently the the Grammy for best long form music video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't yeah. Know how, I really don't know how that works. Yeah. It kind of does feel a little bit like this was a coincidental DVD release just to help prop up the actual bigger love show an album yeah. event yeah even though it came out a couple of years later yeah um it feels like that's really what it's there to do is just to to sort of is to add an extra element that contributes to this overall like phenomenon which is the, the the project yeah i think i think it may have also been released in a box with the cd of the love album i think there's a, there's a, there's a bit on the wikipedia page i was reading about like oh, the, really? about the album that says that it gives sort of different lengths for different versions of the album and there's vinyl and there's cd and there's dvd and they all have slightly different lengths so i think there must have been it must have been packaged okay um, i uh, have no idea how that works then if they want if it won the, the grammy in 2009 but it was actually released three years earlier i didn't you're probably right it's probably been repackaged differently but i have no idea, have no no idea. idea. But, uh, um one of the things though that we do get as a result of these talking heads uh is a uh, a, a bit of a run through of some very familiar anecdotes, mm. um, and I, I don't think I don't think we should really mind that too much. One of the reasons why they are familiar anecdotes is because we know that you know they've been run out a lot yeah. over the course of lots of documentaries. So it's unfair of us to call out call that out every single time mm. as being like, oh, we're telling that one again. Um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of why they are familiar in the first place. I think what is interesting about them is that some of them don't feel like they're really relevant to the objective of that DVD. Yeah. You know, when you have Paul talking about his relationship with George Martin, uh, as in him being the grown-up and the Beatles being the kids, when George talks about um, John Lennon once said to him that he wanted to re-record all the Beatles songs, especially Strawberry Fields, you know, that, that yeah. story. 
Uh, and you have to wonder, what are these stories doing in service of promoting the Cirque du Soleil show? Yeah. You know, it feels like they're there just to, I guess, capture context, but context that might necessarily be relevant to the overall picture that this film is dedicated to showing us. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is that... Um the the questions that have been asked mm. is uh, there there must be a bit of general just sort of more general questioning that is not about the Cirque du Soleil show so if you think about Ringo's involvement so Ringo's a talking head in this documentary goes so far as to to wear the official <laughs> <laughs> Beatles love Cirque du Soleil t-shirt uh, and I yeah. love this album dearly yeah. But watching Ringo wear it as a T-shirt makes you realise how ugly it, it works as <laughs> as a wearable. You know, it's that sleeve, yeah. uh, the album sleeve that uh, Ringo wears on his chest that clashes horribly with the bright red sleeves of his denim jacket or whatever it is else he's wearing. Just, yeah, it's a it's a very strange look. Yeah, I wonder if maybe he, he just wears it now if he's doing gardening or like, or like painting <laughs> yes, the painting. spare room or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, just like... Uh, it's the kind of sleeve that will cover up a lot of spillages. So. Yeah, yeah. You end up with a lot of promotional tats when you're in show business. <laughs> People give you gift bags of things, you know, so that, that's what it ends up doing. Like being a... Being the towel that you keep in the car to like uh, to dry off the dog when it's jumped in a puddle, you know that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, uh, anyway, so, so um, yeah, so Ringo is in this, and he's so Ringo's involvement in this in the actual Cirque du Soleil project seems to have not been all that much. He has definitely uh, been in the room and sort of approved bits of it. He's definitely approved the concept, and he and sort of Giles played him the Octopus's Garden mix uh, that's in there. Uh, and he and, and he approves that, and he has suggestions on it, you know. So he is contributing, but I don't think he is as involved as uh, he, he's a bit less involved in, than Paul, who is in in turn a bit less involved than Olivia, I would say. Yeah. Um. So when they're interviewing Ringo for this, the, uh, there's probably only so much they can get out of him just by saying, "What do you think of the Cirque du Soleil thing?" Um, yeah, uh, because you know, and you, you see him, so you know he thinks thinks it's really good. Um, and probably the rest of it is that you know they're going to need a bit more color. Um, so they do, they are asking him things like, um, you know, how do you? I, I think they must have asked him like, or how did you join the Beatles or something like that? Right? Yeah, sure. Because he he is, does appear to be answering something along those lines. But this is the thing that with a lot of these things, that by accident, nice things come out of it. Because he says, uh, I just love the front line of that band. John, Paul, and George—they were the front line of that band, and they were writing the best songs ever. And th- that in itself, that a, it's a lovely thing to say. Like Ringo was always full of lovely compliments in these documentaries because he just absolutely loved being in that band. Uh, and you suspect he never wanted it to end, you know, and wished wished it had just gone on forever. You know? mm. But also, the first time I've, I've ever heard him, he doesn't—he doesn't say it per se, but almost describing himself as a sideman to the whole thing yeah you know like yeah. uh, which i don't think he was but like but i mean it's it's a thing that he's most accused of, of being sort of lucky to be there or whatever which is rubbish but um uh, but he that's kind of the way he frames it you know that was the front line of that band you know i just thought it was a nice turn of phrase and a, a nice yeah. way of, of describing the other three members of the band when you're the drummer yeah it's yeah. a it's a neat way of sort of singling out yourself as 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 being not on the same not at the same level physically, not not artistically. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he's making that point. I think he's yeah. saying, 
he got to sit behind the drum kit and stare at the front line of the band when they were going together. Right. And he loved them, and yeah. and he loved uh, he loved that. Uh, I thought it was just a nice way of of collectively calling out, you know, John, George, and Paul in a nice sort of neat phrase, which I don't think Paul would be able to do about the other three Beatles. You know, how would you collectively refer to them? Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. no, perhaps not. You're right. You mentioned before about um, uh, Octopus's Garden. I can't remember. I think that might have come from the music-focused uh, special feature when Giles Martin talks about how nervous he was to work on Octopus's Garden uh, because Ringo kept saying, that's my big number, don't, don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of thing is the thing that I would have wanted more in the main feature. Yeah. But you're right. The reason why it's not is because it's Giles telling that story and they need to have Ringo time in the film. Mm. And Ringo isn't telling the story about the work that went into Octopus's Garden because he didn't do that work. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> he's, he's basically waiting for the phone call to come to studio and hear it and that's his story. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah, and it was great. It was gear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what he always says about Sergeant Pepper. You know, he he, he wait. It's for him. His memory of Sergeant Pepper is waiting around a lot. Yeah, yeah. and like I think he said he learned to play chess and things like that to, in, right, in yeah. the in the studio because everyone else was sort of getting on with stuff, and then he'd come in and do his drums, and that'd be that. You know? Yeah, we're done. Yeah. The other interesting thing about all of that is Paul has a slightly different tack. I think when he's talking about it, he's much more. Uh, involved in the project you can see him uh, at some points in the again in the special features you see him visiting the theatre as it's being built wearing a big hard hat with PM written on it <laughs> yes I know <laughs> yeah. it's great and no, by the way no one else's hat has their initials no on no it. of course not no <laughs> the, the only the only thing that's important is that no one else wears Paul's hat <laughs> Right. That's why his has the initials. Everyone, all the other hats are anybody's. It's a free for all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's also it's just scrawled on in like marker pen. Is yeah, PM? Yeah. They're just otherwise identical hats. Like. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, yeah. But uh, so Paul obviously has much more involvement. You see him visit the dress rehearsals more. He's a, he's an active member. Uh, sorry, he's an active member of the audience. He talks to the troupe um, and gives them encouragement after he sees some performance and stuff. And he talks to Dominic Champagne. Yeah. But I did find it really interesting, and tell me if you think this is unfair, but at one point Paul is talking about uh, hearing the uh, what George and Giles have done to the music for the first time, which we're told a few times actually that as a, as a showcase for what they want to do with the rest of the album, they put the, the Tomorrow Never Knows drums uh, with Within Without You lead vocal over the top mm. um, so they played that to the group and Giles talks about being nervous about that when we hear Paul's side of that story uh, he starts off by saying we told George and Giles to be as experimental as possible and then they played us this track and what you want Paul to say is I was blown away it was absolutely brilliant mm. it was a fantastic job it was really inventive and creative etc yeah. what he actually says is that was exactly what we asked you to do <laughs> like well done that is you know that's exactly it that is the one that's it yeah yeah, yeah. um and then he um uh when he talks about some of the elements of the songs uh being put together into one track he says you know you hear these the different parts of the songs come together and they just work brilliantly together and it's like that's again it's still not crediting george and giles for the work that they do. and actually we get the impression giles did most of that work and george was um inputting different 
parts. Yes. Yeah, but you know, yeah. I think that's quite clear. But at no point does Paul really call out this significant undertaking uh, and and how absolutely brilliant the final product is. He kind of almost suggests that he deserves some of the credit for just telling them to be experimental in the first place. Right, right, yeah. In, you know, in a way, it was my idea. Like, yeah. I, I suggested we should be more, you should be more experimental, and you were, and the results were good. Yeah, um, and uh, then the result is another great album that I've released. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does seem that way a bit. Yeah, I do, I do think. Listen, I mean, we're we're kind of fairly seasoned McCartney watchers in terms of his documentary appearances now. And I think it's really interesting to watch the way that he has evolved as a, uh, as an interviewee over the years, you know, we've seen him, we've seen him in a few different guises now. Um, and certainly the kind of stage he's at now, like McCartney 321 is probably the most uh, sort of recent example where he's being interviewed at length in a documentary you can check out our episode about about that from last season um and i think he seems to have kind of nailed that persona is the wrong word i don't think he's putting on a persona but i think he is much more gracious in his in the credit that he gives to other people um and i don't mean to suggest that he never thought other people's influence uh, input was not worth crediting but i do think he's more self-aware now about the need to do that and i think as he has got older he is much more He's a big Beatles fan now, you know, and and he he says this in this documentary at one point or something similar. He says something along the lines of, you know, like while he and Ringo are sitting watching a dress rehearsal, I think he says, "Oh, I kept on leaning over to Ringo and saying, oh, we were effing great, weren't we?'" Um, which is nice, um, yeah. You know, and he says then in the Talking Heads thing, like, you know, I can say that now. You know, I, I feel that you know before, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I need to be humble about it. It's like, you know, we were great, and uh, you know, he's really proud of those achievements. So I, I think he he actually seems to have got to a point uh, at some point between this documentary and and, and nowish, whereby uh, he just loves the fact that he was involved. He does say things these days along the lines of like. Every now and again, I just think, "Wow, I was in the Beatles!" Like you know, yeah. there's only it, it may, it may, I think he says in this documentary, you know, there's only four people in the world who can say that, yeah. and I'm one of them. Uh, which is kind, of, and, he, and he isn't saying it in a "I'm amazing" kind of way. He's saying like, "Isn't it amazing?" Kind yes. of way. Yeah, know? yeah. Almost as if what an amazing coincidence that I happen to be one of the Beatles. It's almost you know? like this is this is almost a little bit of a a golden time for McCartney as an interviewee, uh, possibly, mm. because I think you're right. We've We've covered some earlier projects where he's been a talking head uh, or being interviewed, and he doesn't always come across well. Yes. Um, and now he's much more self-aware to the point where you could argue some of what he says feels a little bit sanitized, yeah. you know, a little bit too polished. Yeah, yeah. And I think in, in this, uh, at this stage, when he mentions that and he says, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, four Beatles in the world, in the universe, and I was one of them, it does feel like it comes with genuine excitement. Like he's not worried about how that comes across. Mm. And, and and as a result, we understand that it's not him being immodest. It's, mm. uh, it is an amazing thing to think about in those terms. Um, so we, we're kind of on the same wavelength there. It's kind of probably a good balance, I think, on the whole. Uh, as much as what I said about him not giving Giles much credit for the uh, the huge amount of work that he did uh, on the recordings. <laughs> yeah. The other thing as well we get on this is there are lots of really lovely moments uh, throughout um, 
throughout the film. There's lots of lovely moments of Giles talking about working with his dad, George. Yeah. There, there's some lovely stuff uh, you hear him say about his dad while his dad is in the room and actually his dad, George is focused on listening to I think it's She's Leaving Home and he's almost like following the string arrangement of his finger. He's doing air cello, isn't yes, he? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But Giles is just talking about how nice it is working with him and and yeah, I think at one point he even says like that's the thing that he'll remember about this project not the thing itself. Yeah. You know, which is just unbelievably lovely. Yeah. There's also obviously there's lots of lovely footage of Paul and Ringo sat together during the premiere singing along doing some air drums and <laughs> and stuff like that and you just feel like oh they're really into it they enjoy, they're enjoying it yeah. which is great yeah and i think one of my favorite moments in the whole film is um paul says to george i think it's during the dress rehearsal or one of the early rehearsals and he says um you know the funny thing is like he remembers writing these songs and I think the example he gives is like um, Eleanor Rigby. And he says, like, I remember writing this bit or the bit on the piano or some of the words like on the back of an envelope. And now it's this. And yeah. It's like indicating now it's this huge production. Yeah. It's just like, isn't that amazing? And just this idea of yeah. him realizing the, the the small memory of him doing something relatively insignificant to him mm. now being realized in such a huge way. Mm. Um, it's just a lovely sort of comparison to make. Yeah. And, and there is also a humility in that. I think, yes. Uh, it, it, you know, in in the way he describes that, you know, as a thought he's had, it, it's it's quite a humble one. But it, yeah, it is nice that um, you know there are bits where I'm sure they realise that they're mic'd up, but like they, they are just kind of sitting chatting to each other in the while they wait for the things to start. I think, and Paul is there's there's some sort of old Beatles anecdote that he's, he's telling to George. Oh, he's talking about how. Um, uh... When they played a roundel, they had to like keep moving Ringo's drum kit That's around it. so they could play other parts of the audience. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and it's funny because like presumably he has told George Martin this before, <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he's told everyone this before, yeah, yeah. really. Um, but the two of them are absolutely lapping it up, you know. <laughs> you know, they're just re- they're just really enjoying each other's company. Actually, you know, there, there is a thing sometimes just sort of meeting old friends uh, who you haven't seen for a while but you have a history with. Sometimes it can be quite satisfying just to go, just to sort of go over things. You know, you've had the conversation before, but it's quite nice having it again. Yeah, just relive because because those that's the person you have those memories with, right? right You're exactly. living those same experiences. Yeah, it does make me think though that for all of our uh, criticisms of both Paul and George, often reeling out the same anecdotes. They are well suited to each other then, uh, you know, at that age where they can just sit next to each other and just reel off the same anecdotes to each other to yeah. their heart's content, both being perfectly happy to be both uh, anecdotal and anecdote uh, Yeah, it's like they're absolutely made for each other. <laughs> the only thing that I'm sort of left thinking about whilst watching this film about the show and having not seen the show is i hadn't realized before that there are elements of the show that don't exist on the album i guess i kind of just assumed that all audio of the show would be captured in this sort yeah. of neat package that i listen to uh you know several times on a regular basis yeah um but actually the film shows us that there are sections within the show itself that focus on studio chatter uh between the band mm. and they they have a neat sort of um interplay on stage it seems where they are acting out as the Beatles in silhouette form uh, along with the 
the recording of them chatting to each other and making jokes in the studio yeah. each other. I'd love to hear that in full. I'd love to see it obviously in the show and see how that's played out as the show stuff. But yeah. I'd love to understand all of the bits that I am missing that are in the show that aren't present on the love album. Yeah, there was. I mean, there's a, there's always been a magic to their studio chatter. You know, every time you hear new Beatles studio chatter, it just really feels like a hidden gem. Yeah, and I, I don't know. And of course, there's a bias when you're a big fan, but also, but I I really don't think that applies to other artists. Not really, you know. Or, or maybe if you're a huge fan of any artist, then you get the same thing. But you I can't just imagine think... the same sense of excitement that a Travis fan feels <laughs> from some unearthed conversation that they've had in the studio between recording songs of their album. No, right, exactly. And, you know, and all these little bits, when you hear them, just feel like a treasure trove. And it, and I think um, because there, there was just a sort of a, a, a magic to their interplay, which is just, as, as big a part of them as their music uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the image that the world had of them and still has of them. Yeah, I, I think it actually it, it's such a good creative choice to include that in the show. Yes, I agree. Yeah, um, to show their personality and have the personality become part of the show is their sense of humor, isn't it? That mm. it was so important to them as a band that I guess otherwise does go missing in that production because all you're left with is the the art. Yeah, um, and not their personality. Yeah, yeah, and and also, I mean. Yeah, given what Paul was saying about you know the smallness of writing the song, imagine the smallness of literally just saying something when you've just you've messed up a take, or you said, "Oh, you know, my guitar string's broken," or something like that, or like, "Can we have a cup of tea, please?" or something like that. And then that's part of like yes. sort of you know uh, you know fifty years later, that's part of an enormous Las Vegas extravaganza show. You know, you do you do see that very very briefly in the film where you see him watching some of that studio chatter stuff play out mm. um, and he's got a really big smile on his face because yeah. you do get the impression it's like that will be him reliving something from his 20s just a random conversation captured in time and now played at large yeah crazy right you know I mean it, you you can uh, <laughs> it's the sort of thing that might lead one to have a, have a big ego you know where even the things even just sort of casual utterances that you said to your friends sort of 50 years ago yeah, uh, and are now just incredibly prized as, as sort of cultural artifacts. You know, I mean, like the, like the outtakes of this podcast uh, <laughs> are, are, are never going to be put into a compilation for people to enjoy. Like, I've you know. I'm I've got something planned. I've got something <laughs> planned. I uh, yeah. I, I mean, in all honesty, we're not going to be able to uh, in uh, probably see and understand and and enjoy all those different aspects of the show without just having to go and see the show. So I think we have to book a trip to Las Vegas. Or it would be remiss of us to not call this out uh, as a potential solution to this problem. Maybe this is the thing that Peter Jackson's working on. Maybe this is what <laughs> he's going to be bringing out is a immersive uh, film of the Cirque du Soleil show set to a remastered love album. Yep, it that could be that. Could It could be that. A re-remastered love album. Uh, and yeah, I think by all means, uh, if he wanted to fly us out to Las Vegas uh, to watch it and cover the whole thing, uh, I think I think we'd be happy to discuss that. But anyway, more importantly, what do you think, listeners? Would you like to see that as Peter Jackson's next project? Probably not. <laughs> but what do you think of the Love album? We'd love to hear what you think. Does anybody actually think it is sacrilege to be messing around with those songs? Um, I can't imagine that anybody feels that way, but we'd love to hear anybody who does uh, think that's the case. 
has anybody seen this documentary uh, and does anybody have any other thoughts that they'd like to share with us you can reach us on all the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. You can also, if you're so inclined, leave us a five-star rating uh, or a review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we'll see you again next week for another episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.